I believe it is my strong belief that physicians who have the opportunity to do so should incorporate, even if they have zero retained earnings in the company year after year. Nobody uh, who is planning to retire has zero retained earnings. I have retained earnings right now in a variety of places. And if I'm thinking broadly about the definition of retained earnings, I have retained earnings in my retirement accounts. I have retained earnings in my corporation. If you manage your money well and develop financial security, in my mind, that is the first step to uh, mitigating burnout. Since 2009, physicians have the right to incorporate and form a small business. We can now form a medicine professional corporation and operate our professional lives within that corporation. Many of us have done it, but many of us have not. And there's still a lot of people holding out and not incorporating, mainly because their accountants have told them, well, it's not worth the money. It's not worth paying the legal fees. It's not worth the yearly tax filing because it does incur fees. And this doesn't make sense if you have zero retained earnings within the corporation. Well, today we're going to look at that and we're going to look at if that even makes sense, that particular statement. You do not need to incorporate if you don't have retained earnings in your corporation. If you take every single dollar out, it is not worth paying the legal fees and the accounting fees. But here's how I think differently. And I'm going to try to convince you that your accountant is wrong. It is a bold statement, but I will try to defend my position. financial health doc welcome to the financial literacy podcast for healthcare professionals where financial security and wealth topics are not a taboo good morning everybody and welcome back to the show how is my financial health doc podcast and I'm your host, Vukia Tran. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that is very dear to me uh, because I really want to make sure that my colleagues actually understand how to properly manage their money and accumulate wealth for financial security and do it in a way that is efficient and tax efficient. If you manage your money well and develop financial security, in my mind, that is the first step to uh, mitigating burnout. If you have enough financial security, there's no more need to run faster, longer, harder on that hamster wheel. By doing so or wanting to do so, you need to manage your finances properly. 
one of the tools that were given to us by the government in the mid 2000s was the ability to incorporate. And many of us as physicians, dentists, and I think lawyers are, are in this category, were given that opportunity to do so, to incorporate. But to this day, many of my colleagues still refuse to incorporate for the simple fact that a lot of their advisors and accountants have been telling them, well, it's not worth incorporating if you have zero retained earnings in your company. So if you take all the money that you make that year and you take it out, so there's no retained earning, it's not worth incorporating because the cost associated with that outweighs the benefit. The discussion today we're going to have with uh, Jamie, Jamie List here with us, is to try to prove you know, with some numbers, why I think that is a false assumption. I want to introduce Jamie List. Jamie is a co-founder and managing partner at Baron Capital Partners. Jamie, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Vu. Jamie, I did a very, very cursory introduction of yourself. Why don't you introduce, your, introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Yeah, um, so I'll be quick. We so the firm has been around in its I'll say its current form. Uh, it was merged uh, from myself and my my partner's practices back in 05. Uh, so we've been around in for 15 years, and we have spent much of that time uh, dealing with three uh, we'll call them types of clients. So incorporated professionals, being as you mentioned, doctors, lawyers, uh, accountants, architects who are managing more complex financial lives just because there is an opportunity and, and many avail themselves of, of that opportunity. Business owners in a more traditional sense, so somebody who is, for lack of a better word, sort of making widgets rather than providing medical or legal or, or, or accounting advice, and, uh, and senior executives who rarely have the planning opportunities that incorporated professionals have. Uh, by, by that, I mean they take their income through generally through a T4. Um, and that's about it. So uh, we've been doing that for quite a while. We are also, I think, reasonably good at understanding that there is more than one professional that kind of needs to be involved in the wealth accumulation conversation. Sometimes many, but I think the, the key is the, the accounting profession, believe it or not. They've got all of the very most simple and straightforward tools at their disposal. Something like, for example, incorporation and the planning strategies around that, you know, they're very good at, at sort of understanding where those are and, and they're beyond some of that. The wealth management industry is also important, but it takes a, I think, backseat in terms of the upfront planning that you can do and does serve a very important role in terms of, you know, investing and putting other strategies in place. But I think you need to work with at least those two professionals primarily. Uh, a good lawyer is very important. A good banker, um, depending on what uh, what your your life looks like, they're all important people. And so we spend our time working with and collaborating with our clients and their their management or sorry their professional team uh, to get things done. Okay, very good. So I absolutely agree with you that you need an entire team to help you with this. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm a doctor. <laughs> I don't do what you do all day long. If I did, I'd be a financial advisor. I wouldn't be a doctor. And so for me to have proper financial security and also wealth management, I need a team the same way my patients come to see me as a family doctor. And then if they need specialty care, I refer them to a specialist. And so this is what you're saying. You've got a whole team of people uh, supporting that patient or supporting my patient. I need a whole team to support me in my journey of my financial management. So absolutely makes sense to me. Today, the discussion that you and I had was, I believe it is my strong belief that physicians who have the opportunity to do so should incorporate, even if they have zero retained earnings 
in the company year after year. And we will discuss this at the end of why I think that, and I believe you support that too. But what we're going to do today is we're going to support our opinions with a bit of numbers. A lot of my colleagues, and, and I have one in particular colleague who's my age, a little bit older, uh, and who so he's in 50s, who to this day uh, refuses to incorporate simply because of that issue is I, I spend every single dollar. I don't have any money left in my corporation. I think it's easier. Uh, there's less taxes to fill and I pay less in accounting fees. So those were the arguments. So what we're going to talk about today is why those are maybe I don't think so much of valid arguments. But before we talk about that, let's Think about why we should incorporate, the general reasons of why we should incorporate. So in my mind, one of the top reasons why physicians need to incorporate is physicians don't have an accumulation problem, right? We make a good salary. It's a stable, consistent salary. So it's not the accumulation that's the issue. The issue is once we accumulate, a lot goes into taxes or a lot leaks out, <laughs> out of the boat. And you have a lot of leaks in the boat. At some point, you're going to drown. One of the biggest leak for us is taxes. So our tax burden is very, very high. In my mind, our biggest financial challenge is the tax burden. And in the incorporation or the ability to incorporate is one of the biggest tool we have to plug away at that leak. I would agree. Yeah, I think, um, you know, taxes and spending and spending is something you don't want to manage. Uh, and I, that, I, I, let me couch that in a, in a better statement. There are very few people, regardless of your income, who are spending unwisely. And the whole point of good financial planning, and frankly, in many ways, the whole point of a career is to be able to enjoy yourself throughout your life. And so a good financial plan there's all sorts of components you should have, but the number one criteria in a financial plan is to be able to spend money at a reasonable rate that's, that makes you comfortable without fear of depletion. So there is no concern at the end of the day that the money is going to run out. That is a stressful scenario to be in. Ideally, what you want to get to is whatever your retirement date is, and that's usually not a fixed or a solid line in the sand. But you'd like to get to that point where all the planning you've done to date and the planning you've done for the future gives you an opportunity to live free of concern that you're going to have to start to make choices that strangle or constrain your spending and therefore your, your emotions around your money um, and then the decisions you make at that point in time. And then the next right beside it is tax. Um, and in many cases, you know, tax is it's not equal to, but it can be almost equal to what you're spending. So another reason for me to incorporate is the income splitting. And I know that some the rules have changed recently in income splitting, but it is still a valuable tool, obviously, if we follow uh, the CRA guidelines appropriately. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, it, and you have a near and a long-term concern. So the rules that changed with, I think it, was a, it wasn't a budget announcement, but I think it was the summer of 2017, if I remember correctly, when the TOSI uh, rules were, were, were introduced and they've been reviewed and revised and uh, I'll say perfected, um, if, that, if that's the right word in this, in this sense, to, to not be detrimental any more than obviously they are in terms of income splitting. But you do have an opportunity down the road once you are no longer an active practitioner to expand the income splitting opportunities that you've got. 
Uh, and certainly in the near term, again, as long as you follow uh, some of the guidelines that are available and the advice that you'd get from your tax professional, there are efficiencies that are available to a family, uh, potentially available to a family uh, in, in the near and the long term. Uh, another good advantage, I think it's a more efficient use of your money. Now, <laughs> you and I have talked about this. Yeah. So it, the, the corporate tax rate, I believe, was 12.6%. And the highest marginal tax rate, personally, is 53%. And I think as healthcare professionals, whether it's doctors or dentists, I think we fall within that highest bracket of a tax rate. So 53% versus 12.6%, I think it's a no-brainer. Uh, I get to use uh, 86.4%, sorry, 87.4% of my dollar versus I can only use 47% of my dollar. Uh, it's a huge difference. So a lot of the purchases are much more efficient inside a corporation. For example, whether you want to talk about term insurance or par or participating in life permanent life insurance, it doesn't matter. The fact that as you get a better dollar, uh, a better cent on your dollar uh, when you purchase those uh, products within the corporation. I'm going to restate it just to unpack what you said because it is important. You know, in some cases, just throwing around numbers doesn't do it, but there's such a massive difference um, in the tax rates. And in particular, so physicians in general are high income earners. And by that, I mean they are going to be earning some of their money at the highest marginal rate, which currently in Ontario is around $220,000 a month. So if you are earning more than $220,000, you are paying 53, and I think it's 0.13% tax on each dollar that you earn. The difference, as you said, uh, between 53 and 12 uh, is about 40, well, 41 cents of tax almost. The real advantage is in that differential. We all need to spend money. We all live and we all work uh, in order to be able to kind of on a day-to-day -day and then on an aspirational basis have uh, the things we want for our family and then some of the things that we want for ourselves, you know, one or maybe two properties, uh, vacations, et cetera. But I think the once you've satisfied the spending personally, that 41 cents on the dollar is really where the advantage lies. And it's tough to, to look at that and not see it as an advantage. Well, I mean, I have, someone has taught me to look at it in a different way. So that 41%, for example, that we've mentioned, that gap, that difference. If I were to invest money and reproduce the same outcome, I would have to expect a 41% growth of my money to, to equate to that. So other than I think in the last year when we, from March 2022 until now, I think we've, we've hit maybe the 41% maybe, but to do it year over year after year after year, 41% is not achievable. So just this differential itself is equating to a, a stock that we bought or some index fund that we bought that will generate 41% year after year after year, which is not reasonable. So this difference, this gap is, is definitely huge when you think about it that way. Yeah. And, and, and so some of the, just playing devil's advocate. So some of the arguments against come in and say, well, I still have to pay tax down the road. Well, you do. That's totally correct. You may have to pay tax later on, but you're paying tax on a larger amount of money. So what you're investing now, to your point, you get so much more out of it now. Yes, I have to pay tax when I pull that money out to spend it later on, whether it's in retirement or to buy another asset or to do something. Again, it's not business related. Uh, you're starting from a much greater point. And so your potential for wealth accumulation 
which is a different, that's a different question than my income tax on a yearly basis. And maybe that's the differentiator to learn from this is your potential for accumulation is 41% higher to your point. If you have this advantage and you can use it successfully on a long-term basis. And then when it comes time on a year over year basis to pay tax, yeah, you have to pay it, but you're paying it on arguably 41% more money. Another advantage that uh, a lot of uh, advisors have been telling me is uh, as a professional, so whether I'm a doctor, family doctor, or a specialist uh, by all means, or a dentist, if I want to own the facility and the, the building that I work in, then there's tax advantages there to purchase the building under the corporation as opposed to purchase it outside of a corporation. Absolutely. There's advantages from that. And again, this is a bit outside of I'm not an accountant or an accounting professional from a, from a tax point of view, but, but my understanding is reasonably well developed. You know, at the very least, saving for the down payment on that property, if you're doing it with 41 cents more per dollar that you've earned in the past, uh, is a great place to do it so that you don't have to pay tax and do that. But yes, owning owning real estate in a company is a, uh, without putting too fine a point, I believe that real estate is probably one of the most effective means of accumulating wealth and passing wealth on just simply because it is not subject to, you know, day-to-day price movements, the markets up, the markets being down. And so it's a pretty reasonable investment that many people who have accumulated a, a, a you know, an admirable, if you will, amount of wealth, it tends to be focused one way or another uh, around real estate. So I just want to point out and make sure that the audience understand that this is property and real estate in which you have your professional practice, right? That this is not a, a, a rental income uh, real estate that you don't practice in. So th- this is not what the corporation allows. Another benefit of the incorporation is we've talked about researchers uh, and travels for con- continuing medical education. Um, there is much more advantages within the corporation. If I Uh, remember talking to a a tax accountant uh, for professionals, if you travel for business purposes and for continuing medical education, there is no limit on the, um, on the number of of travels that you can do in a year. Whereas in in a personal level, there are limits associated with that. Everybody's tax situation is different. I would defer to an account, but, but I think one of the things you and I had sort of noted was, there are enough marginal benefits to incorporating travel, home office, any number of things that may or may not apply to each taxpayer. Those alone are usually sufficient to offset the argument that people have, which is, well, it costs me money to incorporate. And so I think that might be the, the most simple way of saying it is there are a bunch of quick and easy benefits that might arise very quickly. Again, like we said, travel and home offices and, and auto being three of them that may apply that will offset the cost of incorporation. So those are the things that you would find the benefit. Therefore, you're now back to a break even on the cost of incorporating. And then the benefits to incorporating, which we'll get to, are, are a bit easier to have a conversation with. And again, we're just sort of dealing with some of those sort of, um, it's wrong to say superficial, I can't think of a better word, but some of those primary objectives, uh, uh, sorry, objections, to why an incorporation strategy is good for somebody. And I think the cost one is pretty easy to knock aside because of the, the, the quick benefits before we even talk about wealth accumulation are, are, are readily available. Well, it's a good thing you talked about that because that's the segue into, I think the last 
benefit that I can think of. I'm, I'm sure there are more if people are putting them down on paper. But the last benefit is the strategic benefit for in my mind. And what am I talking about? I'm talking about strategy to plan for wealth accumulation and retirement. It, it is much more efficient to plan for retirement using a corporation with using two vehicles. One of them is uh, permanent life insurance. As we mentioned earlier, you get a better bang on your dollar uh, by purchasing it through your corporation. But the second strategy for retirement and wealth accumulation is the private pensions, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. It is not possible to create a private pension if you don't have an incorporation. And, and so in my mind, even if you have zero retained earnings in your company, strategically speaking, people should still incorporate to plan for this particular purpose. And we're going to talk about private pensions in just a minute. We're going to show you numbers. But for me, the strategic mindset of why people should incorporate much, much more outweighs the minimal and marginal cost that you and I have talked about. So let's just quickly chat about that concept of zero retained earnings. Um, again, you know, we've had these conversations between the two of us, so we know where we stand on this, but nobody uh, who is planning to retire has zero retained earnings. I have retained earnings right now in a variety of places. And if I'm thinking broadly about the definition of retained earnings, I have retained earnings in my retirement accounts. I have retained earnings in my corporation. Those are things that strictly speaking, some of those are retained earnings that are not corporate retained earnings. If I look more broadly and I think about the fact that I'm going to need a pool of capital somewhere so that when I stop earning an income, call it professionally, and I start to live off the uh, capital that I've accumulated, whether it's yield or some principal and yield, those are earnings that I have retained somewhere. For an individual to say in the concept of corporate or non-corporate planning, and again, respectfully, sort of, uh, showing that the argument is a little bit, it needs to be fully unpacked. If someone says, well, I'm not going to have any retained earnings, you say, well, yeah, actually you are. Um, you're just going to have them. And you think, or the, the, the retained earnings that you're thinking about, you're going to put in your RRSP, your TFSA. You've thought about a bunch of other structures. And so I, I, would, I would say, let's figure out where you're going to accumulate and what the most effective way of accumulating is, because it may in fact be that doing that inside or using the corporation as a launching pad for savings would be an effective tool. And so I think that um, if we hear someone say, well, I'm not gonna have retained earnings, I think you can challenge that pretty respectfully and say, well, you actually are. You're gonna need retained earnings for when you stop working. Uh, and if that's the case, then let's, let's revisit and, and refocus the conversation based on that. And what's the smartest place to start with a pool of capital and the fastest way to develop that pool of capital? I want to address two points that you made that I think uh, I, I shouldn't make and focus on. It's very important because you said, well, we don't have, you know, you may, you may argue and say, I don't have any retained earnings, but most of us will still contribute to an RSP. And so to your point, yes, you have retained earnings, just that you're putting it in some vehicle. Um, and so now the argument is, is RRSP the most efficient way of doing it? So you and I know the answer. I don't believe so. And we're going to talk about, you know, the, the private pensions and why um, the private pensions is a much more efficient way of doing it for people who are incorporated. 
even if I say to myself, listen, I, I've taken every single dollar out this year. And by the way, some of those dollars I put in an RSP, well, that is a retainer. That's the first point you're, you're making. So there's, I think for most of us, when we say there's no retain earnings, in fact, we do have, and I think we're just lying to ourselves. The second point that I wanted to make, and, and you and I have talked about this, is maybe in the first year, two year, I have no retain earnings. But I argue that we do because we still put in RSP. But even if I wanted to lie to myself and say, I, I don't have any retain earnings, it doesn't mean that you'll never have retained earnings for the rest of your life. <laughs> At some point, you will have some retained earnings because you will have to accumulate for your retirement. Having an incorporation is, like you said, is a launching pad to something else that allows you to save your retained earnings in a much more tax-efficient way. And so even if you say to yourself, I don't have anything to invest or, re or save into for the first two years, three years, four years, doesn't matter. What you're doing is you're preparing yourself for that launching pad. You know, when we, I, I, I equate to, um, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos and uh, Virgin Galactic who launched their, uh, their, their uh, uh, rockets just this last month, right? They didn't just launch, they didn't just decide, you know what, let's do this and let's launch a rocket, right? It took Virgin Galactic 10 years to get to here. And I don't know how long it took Jeff Bezos to get it here. And so it's the same thing. You want to launch a rocket, you have to prepare. You want to prepare for retirement, you have to prepare. And it's not a retirement that you say, oh my God, all of a sudden I need to incorporate. No, no, you incorporate and get the preparation. That's the launching pad that allows you to do it. And you've mentioned this earlier um, in our conversation is the incorporation is the insurance strategy that allows you to do that in the future. And uh, as we as people listen to my podcast on private pensions, so whether it's IPP or whether it's PPP, the longer you have your corporation, the more amount you can purchase past services. So that's the launching pad. That's the preparation that you need to get there. Yeah. And I, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we're going to talk about insurance later, so not to confuse them, but it is a, it's a great, it's a great investment in your potential in the future with, I think, few exceptions, given the potential, given the earning, the income potential of, of, of physicians in general. And, and they, you know, there's a broad spectrum in terms of where this would be, but very, very few kind of, um, I would say, sort of knockout exceptions, and most of them revolve around someone who's filing in multiple jurisdictions. Your your tax advantages in the near term, uh, and your tax advantages, even if you don't accrue them immediately, but the tax advantages that accrue in the background. So, to your point, the PPP, etc. You know, again, in my opinion, um, having that 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 ability to start to do things does really speak quite strongly in favor of, of, an, of a corporation being something that, you know, a medical professional should consider pretty quickly in their career and, and explore it from a planning point of view, explore it from a lifespan of financial health. And if you're 30 and you're looking out to 90, it's difficult to think 60 years in advance, but we can certainly project some numbers 60 years in advance. And we'll talk about that in a bit and decide whether or not, you know, uh, there is a argument to do it. And therefore, you know, making an investment in yourself now by incorporating, paying, you know, whatever that would cost, uh, you know, between one and three thousand dollars to incorporate. And if you have a very simple corporate return between five 
hundred and thousand dollars a year to file those taxes, that's a reasonably good investment. If some of the tax advantages that you're accruing allow you to save 10, 15, 20, maybe $30,000 a year additional taxes at some point in the future. You know, my point being spend 3,000 or five, $500 per year and, and a 3,000 in front to potentially save an extra 10 to $15,000 five to 10 years down the road per year is a wise investment. Uh, I think we'd all kind of looked at that investment as something we can make up front. And so the downside is you never take advantage of it. That is a potential. I would argue that it's a unlikely potential, but if you've got a personal planning objective, which means you are never going to keep money in the corporation, again, very rare uh, situation. Maybe it does sort of make sense when you look at the planning. But overwhelmingly, I think some of those, again, some of the arguments against incorporating, when you work through the problem pragmatically, they, they fall aside. Well, I, I want to, again, focus on three points you've mentioned. I think those are amazing points, and I think it's worth repeating. One, uh, we plan for retirement, and you talked about the 60-year projection. We plan for retirement the day we start working, <laughs> not when we're about to retire. So absolutely, we need to look at that 60 year. And unfortunately, you know, I was in that same place. I was in that same boat. You know, I just graduated at 26. I started working, you know, uh, uh, life is my oyster. Is that the expression? You know, everything, sky's the limit. I do whatever I want to do. Never once have I ever thought about retirement, right? And that's, that's not the mindset of a 26 or 30 year old. But absolutely, we need to think about retirement the moment we start practicing. So that point is worth making. The second point that is worth making is, you know, there are certain things that we need to do the moment we start thinking about retirement, thinking about incorporating. And you've mentioned people incorporate, and at some point, they'll think about what to do with their incorporation. I'll be, I'll be upfront <laughs> and, and honest with you. A lot of my colleagues are incorporated, but don't know what to do with it. And so I, I will argue that most of us physicians, uh, maybe not so much dentists, because I think they're so much smarter than we are, but I think physicians incorporate and then leave it at that and don't use the incorporation to its most uh, 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 um, efficiency. So I think it's important that we discuss that and, and bring it up and say, incorporation is just the first step. It's not the, it's not the last step. And the last thing is there are certain things you cannot do without the incorporation. And one of them is getting a private pension. And the private pension is so much more efficient than the RRSP itself. And so if you want to prepare yourself for retirement six years down the road, you have to start the day one, which I did not because I didn't do that. I wasn't knowledgeable at the time. And the incorporation allows you to do other things. So don't, don't stop at incorporation. It allows you to do other things that will take you there. And that other thing, the longer you incorporate, the more advantageous you have because you now have years behind you. And inside a private pension, whether it's an IPP or PPP, it doesn't matter, is that you get to purchase past years of service. And when you get to purchase past years of service, that amount could be significant depending on your specialty and your income in your first few years of practice. So as a family doctor, maybe not so much, but as an ophthalmologist a cardiologist or radiologist, that amount is significant. And so the tax savings on that purchase of past service is more than outweighs the $500 or $1,000 per year that you have to pay. 
And so I think it's important for, for us to think about retirement the moment we start practicing. And unfortunately, we don't think that way. And a lot of our advisors don't, don't necessarily think that way either. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I can't add to that. <laughs> so let's jump right in into the numbers then, okay? Because we've talked a lot about um, the benefits and we've talked about, you know, the, the, the drawbacks. The drawback is the cost and, and I have to incur some legal fees to incorporate and, and file a different tax uh, filing every year, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, those would be the downsides is a little bit more work and a little bit more cost. Okay, so that being said, I want to plan for retirement and I want to accumulate wealth in a tax efficient manner. And we're going to be showing how someone does it with, without incorporation. And we're going to do it with someone with incorporation. But as I, we mentioned, the incorporation is just a launching pad to something else. So we'll add those something else into the discussion. So Jamie, why don't you take it away? Yeah, so let's sort of set the stage first. Um, the conversation around sort of how we came to this podcast was around how do we understand how effective, you know, these strategies can be and to test them, right? To really kind of to, to sink our teeth in. So the first thing that we did is we agreed on a sample family. So in our sample family, we have a physician who is 30 years old and that physician earns $250,000 a year for the first two years. Uh, now in the, this and next year, 300,000 per year, for the next two years, $350,000 for the next two years. Once we get, you know, the, the, their career is mature, they're in their mid thirties, then that income grows by, by inflation plus one, meaning their real spending money increases every year or their real income uh, after inflation increases. And so at that point, we don't do it on a dollar amount. We just do it on a, on a, on a growth curve. That family has a physician who is one of the spouses. And then what we, what I wanted to do is take them variability about what market returns would be out of it. So the spouse of our physician is a, I imagine, in fact, I'm using a, a sort of a hybrid of a family that I have uh, as clients is a, is a professor at, uh, at a secondary institution or post-secondary, I should say, institution who has a fixed, very stable income, has tenure and has a pension you can't really find a more secure role in the private sector, I will, than potentially a, uh, you know, a tenured professor at a university with a pension. So very safe and secure baseline, which takes any kind of real downside financial risk for this family off the table. So now what we have in my imaginary family is a great opportunity for the physician to make the decisions that are most that are optimized from a tax point of view, and then invest around them. Right. And so you, you don't, we don't have to worry about whether we're a high risk or we're low risk or we're fixed income, this and that. And then the last note too, to that point is all of the portfolios that we've got for these individuals uh, are invested in 60% equity, 40% fixed income uh, over their lifespan. I, I didn't get into adjusting, you know, for, for a less conservative approach in the, in the future and a more conservative, more aggressive approach now. So we just took a very long-term 60-40 portfolio, which is generally kind of how a pension, a long-term pension we manage. The last thing that we did is with this family, with all of their income, picked a spending number uh, again, which would have grown with inflation. So if, if I'm buying a loaf of bread this year for a dollar and a loaf of bread next year costs a dollar three, I'm also therefore increasing my overall spending needs by the same. 
I picked a spending rate that would deplete all of their capital or substantially all of the capital by the time they were 90. So in my example, what I've done is to say, we're not going to give any money away. We're not going to have any money left. We are just simply going to earn our 350 or more thousand dollars a year. We're going to spend as much money as we need or we can so that by the time we're 90, we have, you know, some, but very marginal amount of capital left. It's like about $500,000. And we'll see that in a sec. So that was the baseline. That was where we started. And so on top of that, we layered three scenarios. The first scenario was what happens if we incorporate? Second scenario is if we're incorporated, then we're going to explore option A and option B, which is what if we add you know, a strategy that's near and dear to your heart, Vu, which is a personal pension plan. And then another strategy, which I think you also uh, think is, is an advantage, which is buying a, uh, a whole life policy within the corporation and exploring what happens there. If you go on to my YouTube channel, you will find the diagram that will be discussed in the following few minutes. So stay tuned to the YouTube video coming soon. We'll get to the results and the results are pretty clear. What we've got in front of us is a line. There's a blue line at the bottom and that is our first scenario. No corporation. Our family achieves a net worth of around, kind of call it at $11.5 million by saving wisely and putting away they are. And then begins, once they hit the age of 65, the graph starts to deplete and their line goes down to close to zero. So it's $450,000, which at that point in time is roughly one or two years worth of their spending needs. And again, we're 60 years down the road. So $400,000 a year spending is more probably like about 100000 right now. They're really down to their last dollars at that point. That family has taken advantage of their RSPs, they've taken advantage of their TFSAs, they've done everything by the book with a non-incorporated structure. So the second line when we're moving up here is the same exact numbers with this individual incorporated. And the difference you can see is, is you know, it's quite stark um, right out of the gate. So at age 65, rather than accumulating about 11 and a half million, we've accumulated close to 16. So the decision to incorporate, now remember over the entire really the entire span of your career. So, and I mean that in terms of, you know, you have done all of the years of education and, and, and training that you need, and you're now out at your maximum earning potential and, and career growth potential. So from 30 to 65 is 35 years. And again, we've, we've touched on this before, you know, if the numbers look or seem significant, remember that a reasonably good portion of that person's income is now being saved at a rate of 41 cents more per dollar. Right. We talked about in the non-incorporated portfolio. So if you're wondering where these numbers come from, that's where they come from. It's practically that's it. And so I can't remember what, and each year is different. So I've got no number to say, Oh, the difference in savings was this much, but, but functionally that's where it's coming from. And directionally that's where we're getting those numbers from. Now, Jamie also, the investments are the same, right? We've assumed that they've invested in the same product, 60-40, whether it's inside the corporation or non-corp, we, we've assumed the same uh, stability. Yep. Yeah. Now, there's one caveat uh, that I'll put in here, which, which would change the results a bit. I actually use a slightly higher tax rate on income just to be conservative uh, in the corporation. And there is not an ability for me to systemically in the software that we were using, demonstrate the small business clawback. 
So it's possible that the numbers that I'm getting are going to be muted a bit in a real yeah. world, but there are strategies and we're going to get to them uh, very soon that would allow us to, to offset some of that. So, right. so I would just make a comment that you know, these planning results are, they're still not real world um, and they're still not with every single input of an individual's life put in, but directionally, which is I think the best way of looking at this, you have a very significant increase in your net worth if you spend the same and then deal with the surplus differently is the best way of saying it, you're going to be around $4 million ahead. Just so that my audience understand and everybody understand. So if you're incorporated, if you make above a certain amount, you get clawback on your passive income. So do you want to just maybe spend 30 seconds on what that means and so that we can talk about the the corp with the with the ppp only afterwards so that people can understand what we're talking about we in ontario and i and if you have listeners from outside the province then those numbers are different but the fundamentals i think are um, are going to be similar but we have a clawback on corporate income and it's a graded scale so again it's being very specific is going to, is, it's going to be beyond the scope of this because yeah. you do kind of need to work through it with the tax professional. But suffice it to say that for any dollars of passive income that you earn in your professional corporation, you are allowed to take less and less and less uh, of your income at that low rate. And so if you have no passive income, I believe the first $500,000 that you earn corporately, net of expenses. So if you're paying yourself a small salary or a moderate salary, that is an expense. So your net income uh, up to $500,000 is uh, you can accumulate at that low tax rate. But if you have a uh, any passive income, a portion that, that passive income on a prorated level brings down the amount of small business rate you've got. Uh, and I believe it's when you are at $50,000 of, of passive income that you no longer have access to that low tax rate. And again, please don't hold me to that. I'm, I'm doing it off the top of my head. You know, obviously in this situation, it overstates that, but we would take advantage of other strategies to, to limit that accumulation in that taxable format. And again, we'll get into where that happens. Just so that I summarize it. So there's a, a new tax law that came out recently, a federal law that corporations, professional corporations, they don't want professional corporations to make passive income. So they've limited to 50,000. Anything about 50,000, there's a prorated formula where if you make beyond that, then you get some clawback on your small business uh, tax rate. So currently up to 500,000, you said it was, it's the lowest, which is 12.6. Anything above that, then you get clawback money. So the more passive income you make now in your small business account, you get less and less limit to actually use that 12.6. So you may actually pay more taxes as you make more passive income. Essentially, that's the idea because the federal government doesn't want professional corporations to make passive income. They want corporations to make active income. So that's that's what that's there. And so we're gonna talk about the mitigating strategy in just a minute. Sorry, yeah. scenario number two in the incorporated. So at 95, I would have $12 million more, at least from the yeah. graph uh, at age 95. Start with so much more and the income needs don't deplete the capital, whereas in the first scenario they do. 
right um, yeah it's at, actually it's at age 90 just food just to, to oh uh, age yeah, 90. comparing all these the terminal if you will um comparisons are are and the big important inflection points in people's lives seem to be 65 because that is your you know your paradigmatic retirement age and then currently age 90 is you know um for lots of reasons but it's a reasonable um life expectancy i think you always want to test further mm-hmm. Uh, I think longevity is going to be something that changes substantially over the next 50 years, but, uh, and you don't want to outlive your capital. So, you know, in these examples, the second, the first example, uh, 90 is 91 is a problem. 90 is not, uh, in the second, third and fourth examples that we have up here, 95 and hundred are not problems in terms of outliving your capital. So, okay. So we've gone through scenario one, scenario two for the incorporated person, uh, is far ahead. And then we get to, to a comparison of adding into the corporation two strategies that we've, you've spoken about thoroughly, uh, certainly the PPP. I think you've hosted two or three or maybe more podcasts with a number of different professionals, one of which is as JF uh, at Integris, who, who does sponsor the PPP. So bringing that concept into practice, if you better, for lack of a better word, um, you know, remember the PPP is a new and a larger tax deduction than we have available through the RSP. And it allows us to kind of super fund the retirement of, uh, of the employee of the company who is the physician. And so the differential between incorporating only uh, and incorporation with a uh, personal pension plan, a PPP, uh, is an additional $2 million of savings. Uh, and that is generated largely from two sources, one of which is uh, there is a bit of terminal funding, I think we assume in here. And again, basically an extra ten dollars or $15,000, uh, and, and I guess more when they get older, up to twenty dollars and $25,000, additional tax deductions that allow you over a 30-year period or 35-year period to put in just that much more tax-deductible money into a retirement vehicle um, that in this case is the PPP and the RRSP falls to the wayside. So the RRSP is a, is also a tax structure. Uh, it is also a way of getting a deduction, but the PPP allows you to substantially increase the amount of funding you can direct to that type of environment. So I just, I just wanted to add to that. So we're, we're talking about PPP, but it's really not just the PPP. We're talking about private pension. So it also includes the IPP as well. So I don't want to, I don't want to confuse the audience. So we're talking about private pensions, whether it's IPP or PPP, but rightfully so you mentioned. So the, the current limit for the RSP, we talked about 18% of your salary of your annual income, but it has a cap. And the cap, I believe this year is 27,300 and change, right? But with a private pension, that amount, as you mentioned, is roughly somewhere between 12 to $15,000 more than the 27,000. Even if I did that and just kept it at 12,000, let's say year after year after year for the next 30 years, you can imagine with compounding and with time, uh, that amount is so much more than what the RSP can do. So the way I put it, and most physicians will understand this because we say this all the time, it's the RRSP on steroids. <laughs> really, yeah. that's, that's what it is. Yeah, uh, yeah. RSP, and to be specific, I think it's RSP on an- anabolic rather than catabolic, but not to get into that. But, <laughs> um, but uh, yes, it is. So the differential we're getting, and again, so you want to, you want to, um, 
I like to take these examples and, and you know that expression where you know correlation does not imply causation. So just because the numbers are better, it doesn't mean it's better until you understand where it is. And to your point, we get an extra ten to twenty thousand dollars of deductions every year, and more of that money is being invested in a tax-free environment. And so you're you're even further ahead of uh, the point. And again, although we haven't tested this fact, this is a strategy to reduce the passive income in the corporation. It's more money every year out of that corporation and puts it into a a, a, a structure uh, that is off to the side and does not have uh, doesn't attract, I should say, that that problem of passive capital. Or sorry, excuse me, passive income. Excuse me, passive income. Right, because the PPP or the IPP is a pension, right? It's a pension, so it it's pre-tax dollars that you put into this account, mm -hmm. and because it's a pre-tax dollar, your your earned income could be. Uh, sorry, your taxable income through the corporation is now reduced by this, and it it negates the uh, the clawback that yeah. people can face with uh, the amount that they make on passive income. So, having a private pension plan is a good strategy to mitigate the effects of the clawback from the passive income. So we've been through the, you know, three strategies, no corporation, incorporation, and uh, PPP. And just to remind again, just the listeners, we're, we're at age 90, we're at zero, about 12 million and about 14 million. Um, so we're $2 million to the good if we put in our, our, our uh, just to be, again, there, there's an IPP and a PPP. I tested a PPP. To be specific, I did test the PPP um, uh, in this scenario. Strategies are, they're similar. They're not the same. And I think you can argue that the results in a PPP are a little bit better, but both are applicable to the scenario and both are strategies that you should explore. I, I agree with you in, in looking and understanding IPP and PPP. In, in my mind, the, the PPP offers a few more things that the IPP does not offer. And because of what they offer is a slightly more tax advantageous. And that's why those numbers are, are what they are right there. Yeah. And the PPP... Um, just from, again, from a, a practitioner's point of view, they are a bit more flexible uh, in terms of how they can be implemented. If you had to choose not to do one or, or both of them or do just one, then you should always, I would say you would want to err on the side of exploring them regardless. Um, okay, so the last strategy we, we actually compared, and this one surprised me, uh, I think it surprised you when we came back, was what happens if we use a, a whole life insurance policy? So the features of a whole life insurance policy are, you know, from a planning point of view, if you've got, uh, and most people do, but not everybody, some responsibilities, whether it's, you know, family that you want to protect, and particularly your income as it pertains to your family you want to protect, uh, debt that you take to, for example, purchase a home or to fund some part of your business and practice. When we're young, there's an insurance need, which is a pure risk need. So uh, an, an, an unknown unknown which is I might pass away in the middle of my life and that would be tragic for all sorts of reasons, but financially it could be devastating. Then there's the known knowns in risk management, which is at some point I'm going to pass away. I can't really avoid that. It should be hopefully well into my 90s and I'm hopefully have an enjoyable and, and thorough life between now and then, but I know I have to pay that. So the insurance policy pays out at the end of your life. And so it's not your money. 
um, if, if it's there, but it is an effective accumulation tool because in the interim, the whole life policy or any permanent policy, there are different types, uh, but it has a cash value. And that cash value is, uh, is basically the cancellation value. But over time, those become fairly significant. So in this example, again, the line for the unincorporated personal, again, is right down near the bottom. And at age 90, this insurance living value so that is the money that I have at my disposal without paying tax and passing it on. So that, those are key points. And we're going to get to this in a second is yet again, higher than any of the other two strategies. So we have $17 million that we've saved in our, in our example with insurance, 14 and a half in our example with the PPP, 12 and a half with uh, just the incorporation. So directionally, and from a differential point of view, those three strategies and, and the strategies number three and four. Uh, being the corporation with insurance and the corporation with PPP are, uh, you can't do one without the, the corporation. So these better strategies are founded on the, the existence of, um, of that corporation. These two very, very effective strategies cannot be done without the incorporation. If you are saying I have reta no retained earnings and I don't want to incorporate, then you cannot do what we just talked about. Well, this is part one of this particular podcast, and we will come back with part two very soon as we will discuss further what we can do with the incorporation. As I mentioned earlier, incorporating is the first step and definitely many more things to do. So even if you have zero retained earnings in your corporation, it is still worth considering setting up a corporation for all the things that you could do to strategically minimize your tax burden. So everyone, please stay tuned for episode number two on incorporation. How is my financial health doc podcast is hosted by Dr. Vukit Tran. Dr. Tran is a physician with a special interest in personal financial security and wealth education. Dr. Tran does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through this financial podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. Please confer with your advisor, lawyer, or accountant for specific advice. <laughs>